Hey, let's pray and we'll get to work again on this, this, this dynamic little letter, dynamic little section in this letter that Paul has written to the Philippian church. And this, it just, this is a letter that just bleeds uh, with joy out of all of the ink, you know, that Paul's writing with wherever he's re- reminiscing, you know, about the partnering and the participating in the gospel, the shared experiences of grace that they have or whether he's giving instructions like he is kind of in this little section on how to keep living a life that's actually worthy of the gospel that they received. The joy that Paul has found in knowing Jesus is made complete as he, as he looks out and he thinks about how it's, how it's taking hold, how it's taking effect in, in other people, in the lives of the people that he pastors, in the lives of the people that he has his shared story in Jesus with. And that should be what you know encourages us as we look across the room and we go, seeing the same experience of grace in that person that I have in me. So that affirms that uh, we are brothers and sisters. Loving God, we thank you for that witness, that internal witness to us of lives that are transformed and changed uh, by your grace. You come in to our lives, you initiate this uh, saving grace. And then today we're going to see how we, as Sam said, there's this strange, dynamic, uh, human but supernatural partnering in how we grow spiritually and would that be pressed on our hearts this morning we give you thanks for this letter and we pray these things in jesus name well as i've alluded in our passage today paul is addressing the question of how it is that a christian lives for christ how it is that we are you know in Christ, live a life worthy of the gospel. You know, he's described Christians as saints, those who are pursuing a holy life, who have this experience of, of the peace of God in their life and the grace of God in their life. How is it that all these spiritual realities that God has initiated uh, and Paul has affirmed in the Philippians continue to mature, continue to develop and grow in their practical life experiences and expressions of the Philippians and by extension us here. How as citizens of a transformed and transforming new uh, community, new life, should we be compellingly distinguished? Like There should be something distinct about us, different, but it's also should be compelling. People should be, the world around us should be looking at us and our, 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 um, our corporate lives, our individual lives should be bearing witness to the goodness of God. Now, Paul in this little section gives perhaps what is the most uh, succinct, description of the nature of spiritual growth how what bible writers like paul refer to as sanctification and and in that the relationship of god's sovereignty and our responsibility in that spiritual growth in that process of sanctification now sanctification and this is just one description is a word that paul uses to capture the ongoing work of the holy spirit and the word of god in our lives to transform us into citizens worthy of the gospel to capture the language that paul is using in this letter it's it's our partnering and our participating in the pursuit of holiness at a practical level 
The pursuit of holiness is this lifelong process in making a person's uh, moral condition, you know, what motivates them, their core, core motivation, come into conformity with their legal standing before God, that we're, we're justified. It's this, it's this making um, worthy this, this, our position of salvation. It's God's power and promise at work in the life of believers. But if you don't like big Theological words like sanctification and justification uh, just roll with spiritual growth and conversion. They're all part of the same dynamic of salvation that Paul is talking about here. So how does a Christian grow in obedience, in spiritual growth, in spiritual work? Is it something that we do? Is it something that God does in us? And if it's something we do, how, how does God then get the glory for that instead of us and if it's something that we we do uh, or that God does I think I've got that around the right way then how can we take joy if it's all just God and not us how do we find joy in this growing this developing moreover is obedience something that we should actively seek like should we be after it or is it just a simple case of you know let go and let God is salvation something God does from start to finish? As Paul actually states in Philippians 1.6. And if that is, what, what does that leave for us to do? Once I am saved by the gospel through faith in Christ, what happens next? And who does the heavy lifting of that happening? And this is what Paul is about to address when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, uh, Justin uh, Dillahay, he's a writer for the Gospel Coalition, observes that Paul speaks here in this passage. He's, he's answering the questions that I've just posed in these verses, in verses 12 to 13, in, the most, in a way that almost no other passage in the Bible does, like, Paul takes one of the strongest statements in Scripture about our responsibility to obey, you know, work out your faith, and, and then just blows our minds by laying it right beside one of the strongest statements in Scripture about God's sovereignty over our obedience. And perhaps most important, Paul tells us how these two realities relate to each other. Paul tells the church to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, but he won't disconnect that difficult command from its gracious empowering, for it is God who works in you. We are called to work out what God has already worked in us, laboring not for salvation, not trying to earn salvation, but from it, out of it, because of it this is the dynamic of restful vigilance that jesus speaks about in matthew 11 28 to 30 where jesus says come to me all you who labor and are weary and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light it's also the dynamic of purposeful intention uh, that Jesus talks about when we, are, when we are following him. 
that we are to take up our cross and follow him daily. There's some kind of intentionality, some kind of work involved in that. It's what the Puritans, those good old Puritans, used to call holy sweat. And it lies at the heart of the Christian experience and the partnering and the participating with God in our spiritual growth. As J.I. Packer once put it, the Christian motto should not be let go and let God, but it should be trust God and get going. Feel the difference? As Paul opens up this section, the fact that he is exclusively speaking to, to, to Christians, he's, he's exclusively speaking to believers, um, people who have already been saved, is borne out in the fact that he refers to them or he uses the word beloved. It's a relational description of those who are citizens in the community of the redeeming love of God. Not a single word in these seven verses is applicable or aimed at non-believers. Now, needless to say, though, that God has general, uh, benevolent, kind love for all uh, humanity. And what is known is, is, is common grace. Christians encounter a specific relational love of God, a far deeper, uh, more intimate love than just the general love of God has for all of humanity. And, and, and the love that we experience in relation to God through Christ is kind of a, a taste of the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And unbelievers are never described in this way this distinction is very important and paul is careful to make it with this word because it makes clear that we don't work for our salvation but rather we work from our salvation he is talking to people who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone it's god who does the justifying of the ungodly as we read about in romans 4 and 5 and paul talks about it in ephesians 2 and Titus has got a rip on it in 3.5. Now how does the spiritual conversion, that act of salvation in a person, continue to grow? Well, Paul affirms that it's underway. He affirms that it's already taking place. The new position before God by highlighting that it's born, um, that it is born witness to in the fact that they already live lives of obedience and not complacency and not indifference to the word of life. Uh, which is incorporated later in verse 16. This dependent obedience is the recommended path for spiritual growth. Every step of the Christian life should uh, be informed by holding fast to the gospel, which is another way of saying the word of life, an approach to life that should distinguish them undeniably in, in a positive light. Because their lives then should be like lights that shine forth the joy and the flourishing that is found in obedience. Like it shouldn't just look like we're all baptized in lemon juice and we're drinking battery acid in our coffee of a morning. We should shine in uh, joy and flourishing in a crooked and twisted generation. There is something compelling about how they live, how we live, something undeniably good. They see how they love each other. You know the sort of thing Jesus spoke about by this? People are going to know the kind of God that lives amongst you because of the kind of love that lives amongst you. Even 
if it's confronting, even if it's out of step with the drift of culture, it's still going to be compelling. The gospel should be held onto in their hearts and held forward in their words and their deeds in such a way that while people might not agree with the message, they cannot deny the effects of the message in the lives of its carriers, in the lives of the people who talk about it and share it. There should be no opportunity for people to charge the members of the community of faith with obvious moral deficiencies or blatant ethical failures. Of course, it's not a perfect community, but 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 it's a community where imperfections are not ignored or excused. They are addressed with the objective of repentance and forgiveness, of humility and growth. We've seen that in this letter. And the Philippians have a habitual, consistent practice of having all the areas of their life shaped by the gospel and the scriptures. There exists a holy, not a human desire to live individually and corporately according to the the lordship of Jesus. So it's seen in their marriages. It's seen in their businesses. It's seen in how they come together and worship. It's seen how they use their finances. There's a radical generosity with this group. They've, they've just sent a gift up to Paul to pay for his time in prison. Paul says all of these things, all, of the, all that the Christian does and is, uh, we have a personal responsibility of obedience to grow spiritually in these areas and to, and to continue the work that's already begun. And the main verb here in verse 12 uh, in you know, work out your faith. The main verb there to work. It's this command. Um, it's a wor- it's a verb that means to uh, produce, uh, to bring about, to cause, to come to life. If you like, it's the same word that Paul uses when he says, uh, "Godly grief produces." You know, brings about repentance or in or suffering produces endurance or it brings it about only here the thing that we are supposed to bring about is our salvation we know this can't be the same dynamic of salvation that took place when we were saved that's a hundred percent the work of God so what dynamic of salvation is Paul talking about again he is referring in this passage to our spiritual growth Salvation is not just a past tense event. It's a present tense reality. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved. We're still in the process, it seems. It is the power of God. Furthermore, salvation has a third dynamic that we won't get into today, but it's a future tense reality we call glorification which is what our spiritual growth is preparing us for. The Bible represents Christian salvation in in three ways. You are someone who has been saved, you are someone who is being saved, and you are someone who will be saved. In justification, we are saved immediately, completely, and permanently from the penalty of sin. That's what's going on there. In sanctification, in our spiritual growth, we are being saved progressively from the power and the practice of sin. Then finally, in glorification, we are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. Read about that in Revelation, right? There's no more tears. 
There's no more death. There's no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And that too is something that God does all by himself. But for now, we are not to be passengers or passive in the putting to death in our lives of the power and the practice of sin. We are to work thoroughly at this. We are to expand energy to bring about spiritual growth in holiness and decrease our hostility towards God. Less of us not living in obedience, right? Christians can strangely still be hostile to God. Like every time you live in contradiction to the new life in Christ, you're living in hostility to God's desire to work in your life. Like you're pushing back on it. And Paul's going to do a case study of this in verses 13 to 18. Don't panic. We're not going there today. So anyone who's clocking time, just cool your jets and take a deep breath and rest. Um, that's coming next week. It's all based on, cause, cause gr- it's on grumbling. And grumbling, you know, is an anti-gospel practice. Grumbling is a way of reasoning that there's nothing that you need to address in your life. It, it's, it's a way of justifying your poor form and saying it's everybody else's fault. Rips churches apart and causes all kinds of chaos. But part of the desire for holiness uh, and the decrease in hostility comes surprisingly from what Paul calls fear and trembling, a phrase that describes uh, reverential awe for God. The character of God has become a far greater, and, and by great, I don't just mean big, I mean fierce and compelling and overmastering. It's become a greater pull and attraction, a reality in your heart than the hostility that sin brings to life, that sin produces. Something far more fierce and consuming in its presence has displaced the human desire for self-rule. God is described as this kind of consuming fire whose character razzes or refines everything that it comes into contact, like it either burns it out of existence or it burns it into purity. Make no mistake, God's delight and joy in us is not just some soppy sentimentality. God is not a teddy bear. He is not a kitten. He's more like a lion, as C.S. Lewis describes in his Narnian novels. A lion who loves us, but we must never think that we are at liberty to domesticate him down to trivial levels. There is to be nothing casual about our, our working out our salvation and our heart's approach to God. We are not to do that with apathy. We are to do that with awe. And they are to delight, and we are to delight in, in, in joy in the greatness and the goodness of God's love for us. Like, it's fierce and it's strong. It's not tepid. That's us. That's our approach. That's our role. Now Paul turns to the other side of the coin in spiritual growth and he moves from human responsibility to the divine activity of spiritual growth. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here God the Father is represented as the primary agent in spiritual growth. The agency of the Father is seen and experienced in the sending of the Holy Spirit to conform believers to the image of the Son. That's 
the picture we get. The word work that Paul applies to God here is in the present tense. It's indicating that, that, that God is continuously active in the Christian life. Like there's, there's never a time where he's letting you alone. There's, there's never a time where he's resting on, on being engaged and involved in your life. God is relentlessly bringing about spiritual maturity. He's not passive, but dynamic in the activity producing their sanctification, their spiritual growth, and by extension, ours. This verb work does not carry uh, the meaning that God is doing the work for them, but rather that God supplies the necessary empowering. They're the Philippians, and our obedience is ultimately something that God affects in them, in us. A new motivational script in your heart. The Holy Spirit is the willing, the directional force that lies behind the motivation to do, the motivation to pursue holiness, to kill sin, to live toward God. It's a continuous daily supply of inner grace that is operative in our lives. This is deep heart transformation, not superficial work that merely addresses the facade of people's lives. Truly the old life of being mastered by sin, of being mastered by its power and its practice has given way to the new life of encountered grace found in Christ and the pursuit of holiness. Don't miss that little word. It's interesting, that little word for, or sometimes because it's translated, that connects these two statements. This is perhaps the most significant contribution in this verse. Paul's logic is this. You shouldn't work because God works, or if you work, then God will work, but you should work because or for God is already at work in you. The verse provides, verse 13 provides the reason and the power behind verse 12. God's work is primary, and yet somehow his work doesn't swallow up our personhood or take away our choices every work of obedience you do happens because God is at work in you and yet at the same time it's it's really you doing the work this is the divine activity of God in our lives the activity of spiritual growth is the little analogy and no analogy is perfect it's a bit like the activity of a sailboat A sailboat can only move with the wind. It cannot do what it is created to do without the wind. And neither can a sailboat actually control the wind. It doesn't get to direct the wind or tell the wind what to do. And at the same time, it's it's hapless without this external force. It, it, It can't do what it was created to do. And at the same time, in order for the boat to do what it was created to do, to get where it needs to go, it has to have its sails set. It has to be rigged appropriately. It has to be in position to catch the wind. It's got to be seaworthy. The better the preparation and the seaworthiness of this boat, the more it enjoys the power of the wind in its sails. What are the practical settings of our sails in this analogy? So that we can position ourselves, so we can respond to the force of the wind in our lives. 
that we might capture the good pleasure of God to see us living as we were created to live. That's what it means when it's God's good pleasure. When he sees the restored image of Christ in people's lives, when he sees people coming together and having healthy lives and relationships and marriages and work and and they look after their pets better or whatever they're doing, it, it pleases him. Well, it's not rocket science, but it does take effort and intentionality. It takes prioritizing and preparation. Like you've got you to rig that little boat of yours that's you. Are you regular and rhythmic in cultivating the word of God into your heart? Do you make it a priority or is it just something you get to when you've got time? Do you make preparations? Do you actually make preparations to read and meditate on the word of God? Like is that a rhythm and a practice in making your life seaworthy? Do you make preparations and priorities for prayer? Like, like Monday night, 7.30 to 8.30, that's, you all know about that. In your own life, how do you make preparations and priorities to pray? Because prayer is where the, where, the, where the waters are stirred, where the word of God is kind of born force in our lives do you make preparations and priorities to getting to church and participating in in growth and worship and relationships with other christians like you cannot fully know god outside of community you cannot fully grow outside of community like like outside of community who tells you when you're sinning who tells you and encourages you when, you, when you're shooting the lights out, who shares and, 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 and talks to you about what you've been reading in your quiet time and praying through in your own heart, where does that get shared and nurtured except for community? Do you prioritize that? Are you in a small group where your spiritual growth is encouraged and explored? Now are you serving in a way that exercises the gifts and abilities that counts others more significant than you. Paul's already been over this. That's part of spiritual growth, is to actually go and to serve and and to move towards others in radical generosity and time and money, all these things. How's your little boat? How's the little boat of Mason Taylor going? Is he... Looking after it, is he rigging it properly? Are the sails set to catch the work that God wants to do in my life? Maybe today you get together with someone, some of the beloved, and serve each other's boats and see how seaworthy we are. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you again for this letter in Philippians. Again, we, we haven't got to the whole passage today. Next week we'll we'll get at the rest but today we just want to look at um, how it is that that we grow spiritually that it's not purely in our white knuckled effort that you provide the empowering motivation and dynamic and then we just get to work we get to work allowing your spirit to transform and change us individually and corporately. And our prayer is that we would 
be people who want to pursue holiness more and more and be less hostile to the work that you will in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.